And now it's time for the Fiasco Family Movie Night. Welcome to episode 57 of Fiasco Family Movie Night. I'm Sean Frost. And I'm Tim Leonard. This time, we're taking a look at the 1991 cult classic action comedy, Hudson Hawk. There should be quotes around each of those words you just used. Screenplay by Stephen E. D'Souza and Daniel Waters, based on a story by Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft. Directed by Michael Lehman. Tim, could you please explain what happens in this movie? I I will give it the old Eastern Michigan University try. Bruce Willis plays Eddie Hawkins, the world's greatest cat burglar and possessor of the nickname Hudson Hawk, to which he is referred to in the movie much more than Eddie. But before we meet him, there's a literal storybook prologue about Leonardo da Vinci and alchemy and a magic crystal to focus the gold-making device and a guy on the donkey, who is identified as just a guy on a donkey by the narrator. Once Eddie's been released from prison after a lengthy stretch, all he wants is a square job and a cappuccino. No luck on either score, as his parole officer and the Mario brothers of the Jersey Mafia shoot the cappuccino cup out of his hand and then inform him that he's volunteering to steal a horse statue from an auction house. Hawkins and Tommy Messina, his mentor in the thieving arts, sing Swing It on a Star to synchronize their heist of a model of a statue of a horse. It goes well until it doesn't. At the auction, where the statue is sold, Eddie sneaks in to see what the heck is going on, meets a lovely woman in the audience, and barely escapes with his life after an exploding gavel takes out the auctioneer and most of the room. George Kaplan, a late middle-aged CIA operative, and his agents, all of whom are codenamed after candy bars, are working for, and also against, the husband and wife CEOs of Mayflower Industries. The Mayflower's plan is to build the alchemy machine, turn tons of lead into gold, devalue gold by flooding the market, and then profit from the subsequent chaos. Meanwhile, (laughs) Eddie has been shipped in a box to the Vatican so he can take the Da Vinci Codex from its place of honor in a museum. Befitting his status as the world's greatest cat burglar, he figures out how to snag it in less than a day using about a 100 bucks worth of household items. And it turns out that Anna... The woman from the auction house that was flirting with him is, one, a tour guide in the Vatican, two, still flirting with him on another continent, and three, a nun. Tommy, who disappeared from the middle 35 minutes of the movie or so, returns to the narrative to fake his own death and also reveal that he sold out Eddie to the Mayflowers and the CIA, but not the Vatican. Possibly he didn't have time. Once all the pieces of the alchemy machine are in the Mayflower's hands, they decide that Eddie, Tommy, and Anna are loose ends that need to be trimmed. A CIA hit squad manages a double cell phone with a rocket-propelled bomb and curare darts, and the trio escapes. 
The Mayflower's double-crossed Kaplan and his remaining hench, but Eddie sabotaged the alchemy machine, which blows up real good, showering Minerva Mayflower with molten gold, or perhaps bronze, and electrocuting Darwin. Eddie and Anna use a Da Vinci glider to escape the exploding castle, and Eddie finally gets his cappuccino. And what the hell, Tommy survived being in an exploding limousine that plummeted off a cliff with a little light scuffing of his clothes. Happy ending for everyone! The next segment is, why did you put this one in the hopper? And, dude, why did you put this one in the hopper? (laughs) I remembered really liking this when I saw it 15 years ago and uh, knew that it had, uh, it has slowly been growing a, a cult reputation. So I threw it in the hopper, hoped for the best, rewatched it this weekend and loved it even more. And was showered in molten gold. <laughs> and was showered like someone in who molten gold. ticked off an Aztec. This is one of those movies that I completely understand why it failed. I don't think that I could stretch meanings of words enough to call it good, but it's extremely (laughs) entertaining. I love what it set out to do. I love, I love it for what it could have been. And for the parts of it that genuinely work. And most of the parts that don't work are still intriguing enough that I could see, I could sort of make myself make it work. It's sort of like watching the villain and imagining if scenes had been edited well, um, or, ah. you know, deliveries had come off better that you, you, you could enjoy it despite uh, actual what's in front of you. <laughs> I I would like to direct listeners, after you're done with this episode, to episode 41 of this very podcast, wherein we watched Streets of Fire, a film that I had the same reaction to that Sean had to this, and I believe Sean had the reaction to that I had to this. <laughs> we are in reverse on this yeah, one. This, this movie is Bizarro Streets of Fire. I get it. <laughs> like, it's it's a hell of a thing, is what it is. It really is. I, I will say there were parts of it that, like, little bits and bobs throughout that made me laugh openly and with the movie, not at it. But then there's also just lots of of detours into I'm Bruce Willis and I get to make this movie the way I want to. And I've always been pretty allergic to smarm. (laughs) So it didn't go that well for me. But I, I could see what they wanted to do. I, it, it has a kind of Abbott and Costello or Marx Brothers or Three Stooges vaudevillian two jerks against the world kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And it was at least 50 or 60 years past its sell by date in 1991. In that sense. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it plays very well in context with other things that were going on. Like, you know, this was 91. Um, We're starting at that point to get a real resurgence of that kind of antic in film. 
Um, you know, mm. you get some of that with tunes in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You get, uh, you get a lot of that in, uh, in Evil Dead franchise. Um, Oddly enough. You get, yeah, weird I, place for it. So why not an action comedy? Um, I, I also <laughs> think that, uh, somebody involved in this early on was a big Hong Kong action comedy fan mm-hmm. because this came out maybe six years after Jackie Chan reinvented what he was doing with the police story movies and project a and uh, Mr. Vampire had come out in 87 and things like that. Uh, also coincidentally enough or not, <laughs> uh, Danny Aiello was the second lead in the protector Jackie Chan's second American movie back in 85. So it might be, uh, with, with Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis being actor friends for a very long time in the New York area, that one had showed the other these insane things coming out of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And that was one more ingredient in, in the soup. And it has to be said, one of the things that really anchors this movie is the, on-screen chemistry between Bruce and Danny. Um, they really, their friendship really comes through. Um, they seem like two old pals hanging out. And uh, a lot of the, a lot of the saner best bits <laughs> revolve around <laughs> the two of them. Um, yes. You know, even, even just, needling each other as they're uh as they're pulling the first job um you know bruce bruce getting on him for for his weight and danny firing back with you know they invented watches you don't have to sing (laughs) yes they're they're the standout sequence in the movie is that in order to synchronize how much time they have to do the heist or at least the first heist they sing Swingin' on a Star because they both know how long that particular song is. So it lets them know where they have to be at various points and what they need to be doing while they're split up doing the heist. It's gimmicky as all hell and it works. It totally works. I'm, I, I was just both times I've watched this just gotten completely absorbed in. Hell yeah, old swing standard, you know. <laughs> oh, certainly. And, and that songs, kind of, yeah. yes, that kind of rat pack aesthetic is kind of what you need for a, a light action comedy about the world's greatest cat burglar. Yeah. You, you're borrowing cool from the chairman of the board, but he had enough. Like he'll let you have some. I also loved that in that first heist, you know, their, their brilliant plan of, of uh recycling the footage to the security cameras doesn't just fail it super fails like right. it's, it know, would have not... worked better if they hadn't tried anything yes <laughs> it, yeah you know the one mistake makes the guards take notice, then the guards see themselves walking down the hall. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's stuff like that that really, really sells this movie for me. And and that kind of, you know, overcomplicated plan that slowly falls apart. 
I think the gods must be crazy might have a little uh, uh, ancestral DNA in this one, too, because there's lots <laughs> of scenes where they keep letting something play out where it keeps going wrong more and more and more and more. Shall we jump to the end? The Oh, why not? Another another standout moment, and it's particularly standout because in a movie where, quite honestly, a lot of the deaths are either anticlimactic or too harsh-seeming for a comedy, or mm-hmm. at least not handled comedically enough, um, one of the funniest deaths in the movie is a dog, and... I hate that. <laughs> it, like, like it you, has me laugh openly at the death of a perfectly innocent dog. And they, it's the kind of thing you were saying, not treated comedically enough. When the dog gets launched out of a window by a tennis ball machine, you know, that it tries to catch the ball and just gets flung. They have it go several hundred yards out in a descending arc. And that's funny. Like, yeah. that's cartoonish enough that it works. Yeah. I, uh, plus, whereas they some of the other the- stuff was a little bit of blood. And if you're going to do like a comedic death in an action movie, you need to use 30 or 40 gallons of stage blood, not a little trickle out of the mouth and a teacup or so on the chest and back. Or just more more hilarious circumstances around it. Like, right. the, I, I think one of the better hench deaths was um, when Butterfingers dies, uh, you know, full of arrows telling his boss, uh... I think things are going south. <laughs> I think they're double crossing us. Thud. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still like he should be there should be rivers. There should be Monty Python levels of blood for that. Not not like the dialogue is funny, but the the physical action on screen is kind of horrific. The other thing that like I feel bad about laughing at a dog death. So I want to go back to it just to say Of course. Like they also comedically enhance the dog before yes. this happens. Like the dog has been a nemesis throughout the movie. And at the end, as they're fighting every boss and it's just getting harder and harder, they finally get to the dog. They just had an argument where Anna was telling Hudson that, that you know, he, it's his turn. He has to deal with the knife wielding butler and you know, he he barely gets past that. And then they get to the dog and she goes, it's my turn, isn't it? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. So she goes to take the, to pick up the dog and it floors her. <laughs> she is just flat out having the fight of her life with this little yappy terrier. <laughs> it is so great. Well, at that point, I believe it was terriest. <laughs> It was at its terriest at that point. Yes. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay, I can let the dog death go now. (laughs) (laughs) And and then at the same time, we're supposed to take, you know, the Da Vinci glider flight out of the exploding castle as a thrilling action beat. I... I think if they'd gone all action or all silly, it would have worked out a lot better. But they went Mm -hmm. half and half. 
and it was not a pleasing mix completely. Did mm-hmm. you ever see uh, Crime Wave, Sam Raimi's second movie? I haven't seen that yet. No. Uh, it is also, it's a, a sort of noir crime comedy. And it's also extremely silly, but it's another one where I don't think they got the ratio right in the alchemy. You know, mm-hmm. you got to get your ratios just right or it blows up and you get showered with molten bronze and you have to make Evil Dead 2 because you're in movie jail because of Crime Wave. <laughs> this <laughs> is great because we got Evil Dead 2 out of it. That glider scene is great, and they actually pulled it off really well. And it's they did. It's, it's in a very, very well done special effect, and it's a callback very successfully to the introductory scene where the random guy on a mule is involved, and yes. you see the the Da Vinci glider being used. And okay, sure, it would not work anymore, but you know it. In a sane movie that would, that was perfectly executed, but that's not the movie that this wants to be most of the time. <laughs> oh, I assumed they just built another glider because they, the uh, Mayflowers were building and, and uh, all these other Da Vinci things. I didn't think it was supposed to be literally the same glider from 400 years ago. I found it more amusing to think it was. So yeah, I can dig it. <laughs> This is the hallmark of great art. There's so many valid interpretations. (laughs) If I'm looking at what went wrong here, and and I'm saying this as someone who flat out adores this crazy movie, (laughs) there's a lot of tonal imbalance for sure. But I think one of the, one of the the biggest problems is Bruce himself. um, Because it's more of his moonlighting persona than his diehard persona. Yes. And his diehard persona is what was working in films and particularly in action. So if you're talking commercially, this is probably not the Bruce Willis action movie that people wanted after Die Hard 2. <laughs> no, and I'm, uh, I vaguely remember the commercials. Mostly I remember the completely disastrous critical reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it Die Hard revolutionized thing and was a colossal hit and everybody had seen it. Die Hard 2, you know, more of the same, but people have basically shown that they like more of the same. They'll come back for more of the same. Yep. And then this was sold as more action when it is completely bonkers. Yeah, it is. Like, if they had sold it on how insane it is, I think it might have fared better. It might have made a little more money and and critics might have been a little more ready for it. Yeah, maybe. I have a, a similar problem as you do to Smarm, but I also, some people can pull it off. And I, for me, Bruce Willis Smarm works. So uh, I don't have that allergic reaction fighting me <laughs> watching this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an aesthetic preference. You can't, yeah. you can't force them. Again, I I didn't loathe this. I didn't hate it at all. I actually rather enjoyed it. But oh, good. on a scale of like one to ten, I'd give it maybe a seven, seven and a quarter. Like it's yeah. I'm I don't regret that you made me watch it. Uh someday we will get to that first movie for Fiasco Family where I'm like, dude. But, 
you know, I can understand why it flopped. I can understand why movie critics, especially at the time, didn't mm-hmm. go for it. But uh, whenever it leans into the cartoon logic, I laughed out loud. There's one tiny little bit in the Vatican Museum of Popery or whatever it's called where one of the security guards is pouring spaghetti and meat sauce out of a thermos for his dinner. And just that sight gag cracked me up, literally laughing out loud at how goofy and incongruous it is, while still making sense within the reality of the film. On the other hand, if I'm praising, yeah, this one extra had some spaghetti in his thermos, like, yeah, the rest of the movie's got some problems. Now, am I right that we're in disagreement about uh, about the villains? Uh, I thought that they were just sort of in a competition to see who could go more over the top. <laughs> and Fair. It, it reminded me, have you seen Punisher Warzone? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Dominic West, the guy who plays Jimmy McNulty on The Wire, like keeps going farther and farther over the top. And there was an episode, I think of how did this get made where the director said he just kept asking really that far over the top and then just went for it because she said, yeah, really that far over the top. (laughs) Hey, he's a pro. (laughs) He's a pro. He takes direction. Whether or not he thought it was going to work, he was like, all right, well, if they if they want me pitching it at 11 to 11, I shall go. And of course, Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt are having a who can go farther over the top in this scene off like they they do a pretty serious amount of tongue acting in this. And yes, they I do. wasn't. I wasn't 10,000% sure if they were supposed to be husband and wife or brother and sister, but either way, it's really unappealing when they start tonguing at each other from a couple (laughs) feet away. I love them. (laughs) Oh, they're, you can't take your eyes off them in it. And it's a fantastically misguided performance on both parts. Again, you know, I, I enjoyed the movie. I liked watching it. It's not going to be my favorite thing of ever, but I literally, I picked it up at a, uh, a used book sale at a library for $1 because I knew you were putting it in the hopper. Nice. I did not waste that $1. And well, that's good. not something I could say about every dollar DVD I've ever picked up. <laughs> I do think that uh, their deaths were, I don't know. They didn't work for me. No, they got Bond villain deaths when they really should have just gotten like a cream pie in the face. And then the last shot of them in the movie is in prison wearing those 1930s black and white striped Ah. convict outfits. I mean, I'm okay with them dying, but it just it seemed quick and nasty. Mm. And they were big villains. If you're going to kill them, it has to be. Like the dog got a more extreme death than they did. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that was something else where it's just like one more piece that didn't quite fit with the Bond villain death. And I think with that, it's that they'd spent so much money on the movie at that point and they had such an elaborate prop for the yeah. alchemy machine that when it goes down, like there's a couple of nameless technicians that fall off a thing and get zapped and get blowed up or electrocuted but like the main villains it has to take a hell of a lot longer and it has to be a big showstopper thing (laughs) 
I don't know. It just the 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 hench go down like Bond villains. Yes. Uh except for the the CIA guy who brutalizes uh Hudson in a kung fu fight and then does a flying leap kick while he ducks and just goes <laughs> sailing off the castle. That's just a great like action comedy villain death is yeah. ha ha you are overconfident and you're too good at this. Take a leap. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Following a sequence of Hawk getting uh, so used to being clobbered left and right that he's just ducking and standing wildly. <laughs> yes, there's no punches or kicks being thrown at this point. He's just used to getting beat up in that sequence. That so he's was still probably doing the it. most Stoogian moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All he really needed to do was call out a square dance for two hillbillies to beat each other up, and and it would have been a perfect Bugs Bunny type of moment. <laughs> and I think he was trying to be Bugs Bunny in this, but Bugs has to triumph over adversity. He can't be so smooth that adversity never really bothers him. It's unfortunate, because it, like I, there are some really neat bits in this. Actually, can I tell you my favorite joke in the movie? Yeah. Okay. So Hudson gets kidnapped and locked in an ambulance as the Mario brothers are driving him off to do something nefarious or blackmail him into further schemes or something. I don't even remember the setup completely, but he gets bounced out of the ambulance on a gurney. The The hospital sheet that he's holding onto while he's being towed behind the ambulance rips, and now he's on an uncontrolled gurney zipping through rush hour traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. And as he's sort of leaning one way or the other and just barely not getting clipped by dozens of cars, he sees there's a toll booth coming up ahead and he reaches in his pocket for change because, you know, you can't cross through the toll booth illegally. You've got to pay change. Yeah. And it just that is one of those gods must be crazy moments where the joke is that he's doing the rational thing in a, an extremely irrational situation. So good. I loved it. I that I would put that on a highlight clip of like comedy nineties moments you didn't know about. And and him just kind of going like, Oh crap, it's a toll booth. And then like he has to get, you know, 35 cents exact change to throw in the basket, or they won't let him through the toll booth. It, and that's a callback even to something like Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of times, uh times when this movie was working at its best, I think, where it does Harken back to to Mel Brooks a bit, um, mm -hmm. wh where you know suddenly there are rules that must be followed. <laughs> yes, and that makes it more ridiculous. I mean, anybody trying to do the sensible thing after the ridiculous thing looks goofy as heck, <laughs> which is good for a comedy. And yet, you know, the jokes like stretch all the way back, like vaudeville. Rather than even just like, you know, I don't know, Rat Pack movies or Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies, just like even back to the Marx Brothers on stage, you know, ridiculous dialogue and people slapping each other. And then somehow or other, they also try to get comedy out of somebody getting a face full of hypodermic needles. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But then right after the face full of hypodermic needles, we get that that gurney chase. So I don't know it. 
it when it works, it really genuinely works. I think the real problem is that it's so many different influences. Mm-hmm. There's like a fifth of this and a seventh of that and two ninths of another thing that we get a pie chart instead of a pie fight. Well, oh, nice. Very nice. I was thinking it was like um, it got all these all these really n- good bits and influences got thrown in a mixer and mm. they just gave it one spin. So it's yes. all clumped. I can see that. Yeah. So you kind of like, okay, now we're in this mode. Okay. That was and great. And now we're going to mode. stop in this mode and go into something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, like Dark Man came out a couple years before this. And that was Sam Raimi learning to put all the things he loved about pulp and superheroes into a blender and then lean on that frappe button for about 10 minutes. And this just sadly, you're right. They just did like one uh, Elton Brown pulse and like, and there's still just chunks of everything not particularly mixing together. <laughs> you you handed me kind of the Rosetta Stone to this when you said, think of it as the Maltese Falcon, but the, the silly version. <laughs> and as soon as you said that, I was looking at it like, oh, yeah, okay. In that context, I am really enjoying that part. So, yeah, it's. It's nowhere near as bad as people said. It couldn't no. be. No, it, it's it certainly isn't that bad. I I think it's a movie that that people who don't separate this is quality. This is what I like. You know, it's all one thing. I think those kinds yeah. of people might find it good. Um, mm. I'm not one of those people. I could say it's a, it's a dumpster fire, but it's a really entertaining dumpster fire. Look at the pretty colors of that dumpster fire. Right? Like I mm-hmm. legit enjoy it. It's like it's like the way I enjoy the the apple. Um if that one's oh, a lot yeah. more stable, that one has a more consistent tone throughout. But oh, if only Canon <laughs> Films had made this. Oh my god. Instead of what was it TriStar, I think? I think that might be another problem, right? It had money. And yeah. And they kept spending money. And <laughs> and once you do that, like, you know, a twenty million dollar comedy can can pull in the same box office that this one did and be considered at least a marginal success or even a moderate one. Mm-hmm. But a sixty million dollar comedy pulling in that amount of money is just a tax write off where people have a long, sad discussion with their agents. <laughs> Is that what this was? Sixty thousand or six, uh, sixty million? I think it was sixty-five million, if I remember right. Oh my god, that's way too much, <laughs> right? And and that money is on the screen yeah. all the time. Oh yeah, uh, it's it's massively on there. There's some fantastic sets and props and some cool set pieces and things uh, where. Like, you can tell it wasn't one of those things where, you know, $3 million of this movie's budget went to cocaine. It yeah. just, they they really, like, filming it in Rome on location for for a scene where two people have a fight rolling down an endless series of marble steps. Like, <laughs> there are staircases all over the place. You didn't have to go to Italy just for that. On yeah. the other hand, that fight is hilarious. <laughs> So maybe I'm the wrong man. I don't know. Uh, and that's another, that might be another secret to my attraction to this movie. Cause I legit enjoyed cats. <laughs> um, 
Is that I, going in the hopper next year? I'm not going to do that to you. Um, <laughs> Are you sure? Most, I hear it is an ab- abject debacle. It is. and But I'm not sure we could talk that much about it. It's like, mm. well, that sure wasted a lot of money, didn't it? Yep. Yeah. Wow. It was like watching somebody <laughs> fill a dumpster with thousand dollar bills and then empty a kerosene yeah. can on it. Yeah. And that's I'm not saying that's like my chief attraction to this movie is what I pull out of uh, what what's on the screen. But I also part of me is like they spent so much money on this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. There is that schadenfreude of wow. <laughs> We haven't really mentioned the director did Heathers and a a comedy about cockroaches trying to appear human called Meet the Applegates, where like apparently the weirder stuff was much more personal. But this was one of those things where it's like, look at that independent smash that shows the talent this kid's got. Let's put him in something. And then this turned out to be the something. (laughs) And that's really kind of too bad. Oh, he did the truth about cats and dogs. He did... uh, 40 days and 40 nights. He appears to have at least been let out of movie jail for this. Nice. Yeah. It's it's a shame that when people get sent to movie jail. Oh, hey, he directed Airheads. I actually kind of liked Airheads. The uh, the Metalheads take over uh, a radio station movie where it's like an accidental hostage situation. So having said that, would you like to move along to some film clips? Let's shall. Okay. The gurney on the Brooklyn Bridge traffic dodging scene required five nights filming. The bridge was closed to regular traffic during that time, and after filming was completed, Bruce Willis showed up on local New York City newscasts to thank everyone for their patience while the scene was being shot. Which is pretty cool. It's a nice thing to do. James Coburn's character is named George Kaplan. That's also the name of the non-existent secret agent in Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Andy McDowell was the third actress to be cast as Anna. Isabella Rossellini was originally cast, but had to leave due to scheduling issues. Baruska Detmers threw her back out after filming for a brief time and was replaced. Those two got lucky. (laughs) Yeah. And there but for the grace of God goes my career. <laughs> In the original script, the third location for a heist was going to be the Kremlin. Although Robert Kraft never worked again in screenwriting, he holds 133 credits as a music and soundtrack supervisor or consultant. He also co-wrote Under the Sea for The Little Mermaid. Under the Sea. Nice. Yeah. So it just, you know, it turns out his talents lay elsewhere. Andrew Brunarski, who played the hulking Agent Butterfinger, also played Zangief in the 1993 Street Fighter movie and Leatherface in the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and its 2006 prequel. Blink and you'll miss him playing Christopher Walken's large adult son in Batman Returns. The part of Minerva Mayflower was originally created for Audrey Hepburn, who declined to appear in the film. What were they thinking? (laughs) Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Gold and lead are three protons apart on the periodic table, not one, as the movie claims. 
Andy McDowell and Richard E. Grant both feared they would never be cast in anything else after a premiere screening of the film. Don't worry, they were unharmed. <laughs> no supporting cast was harmed in the making of this film. And lastly, when promoting his time travel film, Twelve Monkeys, Bruce Willis joked in an interview that if he had access to a time machine, he would have talked his younger self out of making this film. <laughs> would he have taken the drugs out of his hand and slapped his pities? <laughs> <laughs> and that's film clips. So, now that we've been talking about the movie for a while, we thought we'd switch gears a little bit and have other people briefly mention other movies. Or, as is our want, we asked our friends on Facebook to give us suggestions on a related question. The question was, Friends, we are going back into the studio tomorrow night, and we'd like your recommendation for vanity project films that did not land with the initial audience. Answers may be read on the show. Rich Conroy of Science Patrol, the Ultraman podcast. Stallone wanted to do more comedy, so he got to make Oscar, which tanked, but I kind of liked it. And there's always Ishtar. There is always Ishtar. There will always be an Ishtar. You know, I finally watched that out of curiosity. Any good? I could see where the script could have worked if it had had actors that were appropriate to it. And uh, Warren Beatty hadn't reshot the entire film. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul Williams did all the music, so I've always been a little curious about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not bad. It's it's okay, but mm. for the money spent on it, doing all of those reshoots to appease Beatty. Uh, they were never going to make their money back. That's too bad. Oh, if only we had some kind of reshoot-intensive money loser we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Joel Ruggeber contributes Street Smart, the Christopher Reeve project that he needed Superman 4 to make. Also, somebody has to mention the John Travolta masterpiece that is Battlefield Earth. Yes, both yeah. tanked. One yep. was really good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do have our very own hour-long episode on Street Smart from the previous year. Really great Daylight Noir. And a canon film that got an Oscar nomination. Shop Smart, Shop Street Smart. <laughs> Brian Clark classes up the joint as always with Tanya's Island, the movie intended to launch Prince's girlfriend to stardom by having her run around naked and have impure relations with Rick Baker in a Bigfoot suit. I cannot for the life of me understand how that airtight plan failed. Tanya's Island. Island. Got it. Yep. <laughs> I do like misfires. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Gerolami, friend of the podcast and frequent guest, contributes, Does Cool as Ice count as a vanity project? It's got beautiful cinematography from Janice Kaminsky, who earned Oscars for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, and the soul of a 50s biker rock and roll movie, which makes zero sense for a vanilla ice vehicle, but it's entertaining as hell. They showed it twice at B-Fest, and it... it killed both times 
Uh, I can remember Karina Magyar years and years and years ago in like B-Fest 03 or 04 when when Vanilla Ice is introduced to his love interest, his mom, the joke was, oh, you're her mother? Word to you then. <laughs> <laughs> There's so a reason she's yeah. a stand-up and we're yep. not. <laughs> yep. Oh, that that was a riff that landed with laser precision. <laughs> Eric J. Peterson says, I am going to call The Last of Sheila from 1973 a vanity project, and while critics at the time seem to have liked it, I don't know that it was a hit with the public. It has generated a cult following over time and got a little bump when Knives Out fans were looking for more whodunits. And as usual, Eric is recommending a movie that I have not even GD heard of. But I want to see it. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, it sounds good. I will certainly check it out if I get the chance. Dave Thomas, our man in Hemel Hempstead, says nothing but the night, the first and last film from Christopher Lee's company Charlemagne Productions, probably counts. That wow. one's a cool. It's it's a supernatural police procedural, and you get to see Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing playing characters that are allied with each other, which almost never happens. Yeah, that's rare. That's pretty yeah. rare. And and it's got a totally cool ending, too, that's super grim, dark 70s bummer. So, yeah, have you seen that one? I have not, but I am all in. <laughs> I, I shall have to loan you my copy. It I turns mean, out the creepy classics guys have everything. I mean, he had me at Christopher Lee, frankly. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. But, the yeah, this sounds – you don't get much more vanity than your own production company's only film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's too bad. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I hubris weaned it back when I was typing, you know, 7,000 words a movie rather than talking about it for 10 minutes. So, you know, maybe we'll drop it in as an end one of these years. Finally, Hillary Braley gives us, I enjoyed Lady in the Water, if that counts. It's the Shyamalan fairy tale. And yeah, I would say casting yourself as the author whose book will eventually bring about universal peace is a total vanity project. <laughs> I also enjoyed that movie. Um, I, I know it is really not well thought of. Uh, by the time it came out, he had lost uh, almost all of his residual luster from Sixth Sense. Um, so I, I don't know. Deservedly so. Uh, let's let's say he is a director given to indulgences. And yes. uh, if you OD on your own hype, that's that. I mean, that is one of my flavors. Of, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I can't criticize a director for that when I also love Brian De Palma. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I can see that. And yeah, swinging for the fences is pretty cool. <laughs> swinging for the fences and whiffing is silly. You look ridiculous, and that's that. <laughs> he did make one of the greatest superhero movies uh, uh, or comic book movies ever made. So, oh yeah, and uh, and the Sixth Sense is a masterpiece. I mean, it's PG thirteen, and it's also utterly horrifying yeah. through implication rather than being explicit. Like the dude had some legit street cred. Then he OD'd on his own hype. <laughs> I'm going to make you watch it one year. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm certain that you are. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe I'll rather like it on balance. So, Tim. Yes? What would you recommend if I asked you to recommend a vanity project that uh, flopped? <laughs> I would tell you to watch a movie that features Leslie Nielsen as a Mexican drug lord. Go on. Viva Knievel. Oh, yes. A movie in which Evil Knievel plays himself, but plays himself as a saintly man who is so awesome that he inspires an orphan to throw off his crutches and walk. Because if Evil Knievel can get better after a crash, this polio kid can get better after polio. <laughs> it is insanely over the top in lots of different ways. Uh, it has a Gene Kelly morbidly embarrassing himself as uh, an alcoholic mechanic who hates his son. Uh, <laughs> it's got red buttons as the conniving manager. It's got Frank Gifford as himself. It's got Dabney Coleman as an evil asylum director. And Marjo Gortner as a an up and coming young young stunt bike jumper over things guy. So it could have been a star is born on Harley's, but it totally is not. I really enjoyed this movie. It is it is crazy pants. It is late seventies stupid in only the way a late seventies stupid movie could be. And it just, I, I can't really describe it except to say that at some point I expect Will Ferrell to try and do a shot for shot remake. Like when you have a movie that has a central promise of we're going to smuggle cocaine in his corpse. Well, his duplicate trailer, because if Evil Knievel dies doing a Mexican jump, obviously he will get a state funeral in the U.S. and, and everyone will be too heartbroken to inspect the semi-trailer that his body is in. <laughs> this is literally what the plot is. It's so good. <laughs> you want to talk Vanity Project, the state funeral for Evil Knievel must have diplomatic immunity on the way back from Mexico. <laughs> How was that not a canon film? <laughs> I, I think it was just a little too early for it. 77 was before the Apple. I If I were to do like a remake of it, which honestly I think should be done, or at least a parody, the only real change I'd want to do is put a claymation dinosaur in the big parade welcoming him, welcoming him to Mexico and not explain it. <laughs> just like, oh, and they brought out a stegosaurus to say hi. <laughs> It's that kind of film. And uh, Jessica Ritchie, former guest of the show, love, love, loves the scene where Gene Kelly goes through heroin withdrawal and the actor just sort of yells syllables at people and pounds at a door. She, I think she's the one who told me her theory that Gene Kelly made Xanadu so that this would not be his final film. <laughs> Sounds legit to me. So, Sean, I'm certain that you, too, have a love of some sort of 
vanity project that landed with a resounding thud with audiences and or critics. I I would like to say that I probably have quite a number of them, but I stopped yes. thinking after the first one that came to mind because I do really, really like this. And that is 1990s Dick Tracy. Uh, I honestly quite like that movie. It's it's really good. And it is. Everybody hated on it, and I, I don't know why. I have since you know people who admit to seeing it um, that I talk to now generally are in favor of it, but that that's not what happened when it came out. <laughs> I actually won free passes to see it from a local TV station. So my younger brother and I got driven to an incredibly awkwardly located out of the way theater. And my mom just basically read magazines in the car for a couple hours. And then we got out to out of the movie. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, just the the sheer hell of lighting that movie must have been insane because he tried to make it look like the Sunday funnies. So there's only seven shades of color in the entire film. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. It It is. It is one of the most beautiful movies. Just, just that color palette coming to life, the vibrancy of it. Yeah. Everything, you know, despite what people have said, I think that, Everything really, really works in that movie. Everyone does great jobs. Um, uh, the Rocketeer bombed around the same time. I think people weren't ready for unironic comic book heroes at that point. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Like, um, and especially these are more, even though uh, both Phantom and Dick Tracy were still coming out, mm-hmm. uh, they're thought of as you know, old, they're thought yeah, of 1940s as, stuff rather than, yeah. Uh, you know, 1990. So, yeah. So it's a half century out of date. People are going to say it looked weird because they didn't understand what people were shooting for. And there's lots of, of prosthetic makeup obscuring pretty much all of the supporting cast. Yeah. Which was Other great. Than that, oh, <laughs> fantastic. Start to finish top to bottom. I mean, I am, I am, one of the last people who would ever give Warren Beatty props for anything, but hmm. um, I, you know, he he directed and starred in this. Uh, it's a project he really wanted to do, and uh, I think it I think it worked uh, for once. <laughs> yeah. And hey, Michael J. Pollard's in it too somewhere. He's I think he's the guy who's listening in on the wiretap. Oh God, so many. It's just, it's so very, with, very many people. It's filled with that guys. And, you know, it's got Charles Durning. It's got Mandy Patinkin, uh, Madonna, of course. Um, yeah. uh, oh, right. Al Pacino is in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman, Kathy Bates. As Mumbles, which I think is making fun of him as a method actor. Yes. Which is fantastic. It was so good. Catherine O'Hara was in this. I mean, yeah. this was a great cast. Oh, Paul Sorvino. Uh, isn't he one of the, the threat establishing casualties early on during the mob war? I think so. It's yeah. been a while. Yeah. Um, but so. I did finally find my copy again. So, Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it it's just it's one of those things that's such a singular vision. It's it's up there with Streets of Fire in nobody is ever going to be allowed to try this again. Yeah. Yep. And they've you know, he's still sitting on the rights. Yeah, um, I'd heard that. That every so often there's another chapter in the lawsuit and he's still retaining the the remake and sequel rights. Yep. <laughs> Uh, did you by any chance happen to have the instant paperback that came out? There was, uh, like a further adventures of Dick Tracy anthology. The, the further adventures of Batman was a big, big hit. They spun that off into further adventures of the Joker. And I think it was, uh, Martin Greenberg and Martin Weinberg, the two guys that did all of those paperback anthologies back in the eighties and nineties. Sure. Uh, they, I think they were the editors for the Dick Tracy one too. One of them has, uh, mumbles becoming a rockabilly singer and people buying his records and playing them over and over because nobody can make out the lyrics. <laughs> and it, it, it was, you know, they could do anything. You could set it in the thirties to the nineties. One of them is him, you know, as a about to retire too old for this detective coming up against a crystal meth distributor. That, that, you know, whatever the writer wanted to do within the Dick Tracy universe, they were able to do. Nice. So, yeah, if you get a chance, like, at least that story was specifically written for you. But I remember a lot of the other ones being very good. I think it was called, like, Dick Tracy Secret Case Files or something. Oh, okay. So, you want to go for five in a row? Yeah, uh, let's... Big Let's box, see what the no randomizer's got for you uh, this time. Oh, combo breaker. Damn it. Yeah, well, we can't do all 13 of yours in a row. Then you'd have to sit through all 13 of mine in a row. <laughs> you know, it's completely random. It could uh -huh. happen. It might. There's nothing preventing you from getting a jackpot every time you pull the lever of a slot machine other than probability doesn't work that way. <laughs> but it's it's a chance. It's a one in however many thousand chance. There's nothing that would prevent those popping up one after another, after another, after another. It just never happens. So what are we watching? We are watching Starship Troopers. Oh, my God. I'm glad I get to kick one off with that because it's about a dumb, failing fascist society and oh. the pretty people who go off to get murdered in a war of choice. Entertainment is like supposed to take us away from reality. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it it's random. It could have come up much later. Could have come up first. Then we'd already be done with it. I have a, a, well, not long, but complicated history with this film. Uh, but I'm, we'll get into that, uh, yeah. when next we meet. <laughs> I, I didn't fully realize how great it was until about the fifth or sixth time I'd seen it. A lot of pieces fell into place that were always there, but that I hadn't noticed. But we'll get into that too. Uh, I will say when I played Warhammer 40k, I was the Tyranids, Bug Army. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to the bugs because the bugs will wreck you uh, all that in a few weeks until then thank you for listening to this episode of Fiasco Family Movie Night 
If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can. The Fiasco Family is part of the Megaphonic Network, and you can find us at megaphonic.fm slash fiasco, alongside other fancy podcasts such as It's Just a Show, which examines episodes of MST3K and the movies they feature. We're also at facebook.com slash fiascobrotherspodcast, because they won't let us change our name, and on Twitter as at fiascofamilypod. If you enjoy the show, and honestly, who doesn't? Consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, Totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes. That's at patreon.com slash fiasco brothers, because they won't let us change the name. Or support the network at patreon.com slash megaphonic. Both options support us, get you access to bonus content, and can give you an invite to a members-only Slack to hang out with all the megaphonic hosts. We'll see you again in a few weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. Speak with the dolphins now. <laughs> Just shoot her. Anybody? Darwin, this is supposed to be torture, not therapy.